Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's New Year's weekend, so we have a holiday clips episode that features a previously aired conversation with artist Ursula von Reidingsvard. This program was taped on the occasion of the Fabric Workshop and Museum's presentation of Ursula von Reidingsvard, The Contour of Feeling. It was an exhibition of roughly 20 von Reidingsvards, mostly made since 2000. The exhibition was curated by Mark Rosenthal. Von Reidingsvard is one of America's leading sculptors. Since her first solo exhibition 43 years ago, she's had solo shows at or fulfilled major commissions for museums such as Storm King Art Center, the Art Institute of Chicago, the North Carolina Museum of Art, the Walker Art Center, and many more. Ursula von Reidingsvard, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Tudors to Windsors, British Royal Portraits from Holbein to Warhol. Organized in partnership with the National Portrait Gallery London, this sweeping survey of some 150 paintings, sculptures, and photographs spans four dynasties and 500 years of British royal portraiture, exploring a changing nation through artists' depictions of monarchy. On view October 7th through January 27th, only in Houston. Visit mfah.org royals for more. Come to the Getty Center for a respite from the holiday madness. Three new exhibitions open this month, Monumentality, Spectacular Mysteries, and Artful Words, while major exhibitions Sally Mann and the Renaissance Nude continue, along with A Queen's Treasure from Versailles, The Art of Three Faiths, and other focused shows. Learn more about what to see and do at the Getty this December at getty.edu slash 360. Since opening in 2005, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University has been dedicated to building a groundbreaking collection of contemporary art centered on diversity and inclusion. The museum's emphasis is on artists historically underrepresented, overlooked, or excluded from art institutions, with a particular focus on artists of African descent. In this effort, the museum supports global artists of extraordinary vision whose works spark opportunities for thoughtful engagement. Drawing primarily on the collection built over the last 12 years, the exhibition People Get Ready, Building the Contemporary Collection, includes works dating from 1970 through 2018 that address issues ranging from identity to social justice and environmentalism. People Get Ready extends into a second pavilion, integrating some contemporary art among historical works in the collection. In doing so, connections across time, space, and culture become possible and present the opportunity for challenging dialogue. A related mini-exhibition, People Get Ready, Southern Lens, explores Southern culture through the museum's rapidly growing photography collection. An early breakthrough work by Fred Wilson, Colonial Collection, anchors the Arts of Africa Gallery, among traditional works of art from the continent. A painting by Kahindi Wiley is now on view in the European Gallery. A work by Pedro Lash reflects upon works in the Art of the Americas Gallery. A photograph by Eve Sussman brings a new dimension to the Medieval Gallery all at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. And we're back. Ursula von Reidingsvard, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much, Tyler. I'm happy to be here. I know that interviews with you tend to start in Germany or with your Polish background, and you've said over and over again how you don't love it when people start the work and the biography. So I want to start somewhere else. That's in the mid-1970s at Columbia in New York, a time when big male minimalism was surely unavo- unavoidable and, and you were in school. And in the catalog for this show, you did a Q&A with Mark Rosenthal that contained some of the bluntest things I've ever read you say about minimalism, that you found it forced, 
that you, I love this, that you, quote, sucked at it, that you found it lacked, quote, sexiness, and there wasn't even any humanity in it, and that the minimalists took a conceited position in which they looked from the top of the mountain down. So appreciating and understanding and honestly loving all that, looking back, do you think that your reactions to big male minimalism came into your work right away? I do, I do actually. I think some of the things that they do with repetition came into my work, but I think not a lot that 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 I that I sort of garnered from them. I was very close, and I really liked Saul Lewitt. You know, we exchanged our work, our sculptures, and I I, I have one that I feel so proud of. It's 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 wonderful. I mean, I I had a tremendous respect of, for what he did, for what who, who he was as an artist, and he was certainly a minimalist. But I just feel like, you know, the thing that happened to him when he went to Italy in that he drank the Italian colors and you can't have the Italian colors without without it feeling emotional you know so i think he had a, a, a different take that had a sense of humor i think i think he loved obviously doing it his own way and and and, and many of his pieces look playful but many of them also look rigorously logical. And I, I just admire him a lot in every way. For me, the two ways minimalism most existed in your work, starting in the late 1970s and, and often still, still to the present, are in their embracing of seriality, the repetition of forms, and in your use of grids. And I'm guessing at some point you made a decision that having those two remnants of you, if you will, of minimalism in your work was okay. And I wondered why holding on to those two things that were so important to minimalism ended up being okay for you. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't entirely consciously even think that, that this was what I was, that I was borrowing something from the minimalist. Obviously I was. Obviously, I was affected by it, but it was my way of keeping order, and the thing that minimalists had was order, you know, because I would fling, you know, this organic stuff in a way that was so, I was so full of that, you know, and I would, and, and, and I think as I'm getting older, I'm sort of, you know, really taking it for this ride that's dramatic and fast and quirky and angry and I, I don't think from whom I borrow but I'm sure I'm sure I borrow from a lot but I, I don't think of myself as being belonging to any group that I know of you know as sort of being really faithful to a you know to the expressionist or whoever it is that that, that reigns now Certainly the thing in your work that most rejects minimalist art, minimalist practice, is the surfaces of your work. Minimalist surfaces tend to be clean, simple, flat, prefabricated, you know, interesting in their own way, but not kind of visually exciting. Whereas your surfaces are the exact opposite. Did you develop the surfaces, the idea for your surfaces as a response to minimalism, or was there something else that informed your 
the complication and topography of what became your very recognizable surfaces? It's very hard for me to tell you the reason why I do what I do. But I think that the closest thing I can say is that it relies on something that, that is very vague, something that I might call intuition, something that I don't even understand in what part of my body that lies, because it's not necessarily in my brain. In my brain, I associate with logic and rationale and all of those things that I don't think I really use very much. And people think that I think about, you know, my childhood in, in the camps in Germany. While I work, I never think of that. You know, it's more like trying to figure out, because I usually have something in my mind you have to in order to start a work. You have to have something that you really want, that you really want to dedicate your time to, that, that you have an urge to do. So I follow that path. And I follow the image that, that's behind that path. And very often, you know, as I build, it tells me that, no, Ursula, you're, you're not going to get there this way. You're not, it's not going in that direction. And I have to make all sorts of decisions whether, whether to take the directions that the piece itself is telling me to go, which is the way that I usually go. Because the more the piece is built, the more it's clear to me as to what else it is that it needs, that I can't go as wayward with the sculpture when it's almost finished, when it's close to being finished. You mentioned camps in Germany. Those are the displaced persons camps put up by the Allies in the wake of World War II. You've spoken about them a whole bunch, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that biographical backstory here, but we will have a link on manpodcast.com to the marvelous Judith Richards interview for the Archives of American Art, in which you, you talked about that, that time in your life in, in great depth. So if readers want, or if listeners want to read that, please take a look at the show page. I'm, I'm also going to be weird in that instead of first asking you about specific cedar works... <laughs> I'm going to ask you first about cow intestines. There is a cow intestines inclusive piece up at the Fabric Workshop, Ocean Floor, from 1996. And in 1995, you made two pieces of stacked cow intestines, one called Stacked Blankets, the other called Pinned Blankets. There are two artists who, who come to mind when looking at and thinking about those pieces for me. One is Richard Serra who worked around that kind of form and with unusual materials in his famous um, 1968 cast rubber piece at the St. Louis Art Museum. And then, of course, Ava Hess. And, and you've talked about Hesse before, and another one of these kind of really great lines. Um, you said, quote, I thought it was just the way I wanted to see a woman work. Was there a time in your career, whether it was in grad school or into the 80s or into the 90s, when you thought through how a woman should work, so to speak? Oh, I don't think so. I wouldn't want to figure out what it is that I'm doing because I'm a woman. I, I simply am a woman. That's what I happen to be. But I don't like, I, I, I get very nervous about categorizing men and women 
you know, as being, as having a precursor to their way of thinking or their way of making art. I, I want to think that I can think as much like a man as a, as a woman, although it's obvious that I am a woman and that probably there are more things that belong to a woman that I do with my work than with a man, than the man would, you know, the quality that the man would have. But but I, I do things that I try, try, try not to look like my work has machismo in it, like my work looks like it is that that of a man. Now, see, now I'm being prejudiced in saying that there is that look, the look, look of a man. Even though I admire feminists, I've never been a feminist. And I don't know, as my career went on, I'm sure that there were there were some prejudices, but I never paid attention because I was too busy doing what I needed to do. I think if there is a connection with men, it might be the scale that I'm using. But, but just as I say that, the scale is something that I don't do unless I really need it. And and when I do things that, that there's a there's a piece now that's at the at the Philadelphia Museum of Art that is in their in their sculpture garden that's enormous and it's made out of cedar first then taken to the foundry and they cast it in bronze and then I patina it. This piece is almost twenty feet high. And it's very, very, very complex in the way that it was made. But what I think of while I'm making is I want something to flow like fabric. This is asking bronze to flow like fabric. It's not something bronze is going to want to do. You know, so I have to, I feel that that I have to help it out. And there are a lot of perforations. You've probably seen the bronze bowl with lace. There are perforations at the top of it that I think, I think somehow it makes me closer to women than to a man. But while I'm doing it, I'm not thinking it. So that it's not as though I do it intentionally. You know, this is what I what I most want to do at the time for that particular piece. And what actually happens is that is that it does feel like the wind can affect the bronze. It, it, it that is, it can affect it in a way that I can make forms into it that make it feel as though the wind is strongly affecting it. And, you know, and pushing it or, or that, that it has a feeling of the surface of the ocean. I'm not saying that I can do anything that's like the surface of the ocean, but I have infinite admiration for what the ocean surface can do. I can never do that, but I take in small, small spoonfuls of, of what I see that nature does. And I just interpret, interpret just things that feel like, like it'll have a movement that will soften the bronze. 
The Bronze Bowl with Lace, which you mentioned, is a 2013-14 piece that was cast last year and earlier this year. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com. Do you then remember or or know why you thought Ava Hess's work was why was was the way you wanted to see a woman work, or is it just a, a throwaway line from an interview? She <laughs> is such a great artist. I lectured on her at Yale when they had an, a gathering for Eva Hess after she died of all of the people she best knew that were her friends that were, you know, or, or her husband was there, but I saw Lewitt had a huge crush on her. And so we had this huge gathering. I am so crazy about her exploration, the materials she worked with, things that nobody before that worked with these materials, the the courage she had. And the knowledge, you know, at the end of her life that she was, she knew she was, she was going to die, you know, for some period of time. And I know collectors that have been with her at that moment and they see her taking, you know, a, a, a handful of pills. And she was obviously not only brave about it, but she, she, she kept on working and kept on exploring. But, but, that's that's not the bottom line. The bottom line is just her, her work has such a great sense of humor with some of the frames she puts on her things. And even using some of the materials she uses, it's ludicrous, you know, that there's something that was so unpredictable and fun and funny. But more than that, she just had a a grip on what it is that she wanted, not that she knew so clearly because you see how much she she changed her mind with so many things as she went on, but that there was this, it's, it's so obvious that, that, that this gave her excitement, that she was excited while she was doing these things. Yeah. One other question about these kind of mid seventies years before we move forward. You worked in steel in uh, in those years before obviously moving on from steel. Did you get anything out of working in steel that stuck with you or that informed you afterward? I worked at Columbia University only with steel, and it was two years from seventy three to seventy five. And I couldn't, I just couldn't get anywhere with it until I just took a sheet of steel and it could have been, you know, a size that they happened to come in. Maybe one was 36 inches by 24 inches. And I pinned it to a frame and a frame that was a steel frame. I pinned it with C-clamps, you know, maybe in, in six or seven places. I then used the oxyacetylene torch onto it, and I had a rod that had also metal on it. And I would, with the torch, heavily heat a very small portion and then I would let the metal from the rod fall on it. Then, and next, next I did again a heavily right next to that another heavily heated small portion, and I then put another another blur blob of what I was holding 
the wire. It was almost like a thick piece of wire that I had in my hand that melted onto it until I got something that felt like prayers. There were many, many lines of these dots that protruded ever so slightly, many lines, and then I would skip some lines, and then there were many lines again. And the whole sheet of steel got made organic because it had it had places that rose and places that went back and rose but very irregularly so again it felt like some like 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 on this sheet of steel that there was some sort of a wind that was blowing on and had an effect on it because it wasn't these these rises and and places that were concave did not do it in a regular way so those were the only things that I liked that I did there. So do you think that idea or experience lived on in a work such as Black Tongue Plate from 2008 or Plate with Dots from 2006? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm sure they're related. In any case, it came from the same mind. You know, I could even say that the piece that the San Francisco Museum of Art has with those, you know, enormous bulbs that look so primitive on her. And she's she's on the roof, but I could almost say that that is also something like what I did on that metal sheet. I never, I never, it never occurred to me, but you're right. All in the mid-2000 aughts, so 30 years on. Yes, that's right. Your early professional work, that is, once you're out of school, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, was substantially not just outdoors, but it was a specific large-scale engagement with specific outdoor places. So I'm thinking of work such as the 1983 Tunnels on the Levee project in Dayton and Song of a Saint, Saint Eulalia, Eulalia, one or the other, uh, near the Niagara River Gorge in Lewiston, New York, and that, that piece is 1979. The Lewiston work, by the way, was, was literally planted in the earth with a post hole digger. So this is all a long way of asking. You sure seem to have been specifically interested in or engaged by earthworks and land art and, and being out there in the land like that work was. Did that work interest you and why? I love doing that piece. And I had, I don't know, this, I, this is not so consequential, but for all of the posts that were left, I had this enormous fire that I lit at the very end before I left Lewiston. And it looked, you know, I, you know, I, 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 I took a long time to find the place where I was going to be planting these posts with these pods on them. And, I, I can't tell you why I did what I did, cause, because I, I, I don't know. But they really liked that land. I could tell that, that all, these, all these posts really liked being there, to the extent that when I had to cut them down, this is, I think, maybe two years after I made it, I had to cut them down with a chainsaw deep, you know, a little bit into the earth, Somebody came up and started shaking their hand at me, and they said, you can't do that. And I said, yes, but, you know, I have to do it. And they said, you can't do that because the Indians made it. And that made me feel, 
so good, you know, that they wouldn't believe that I was the one that made this. Were there specific earthworks that impressed you back then in the 70s? Because neither of these are, I mean, Song of a Saint, which is, you know, what you described and is on a hillside, it does not look like or really have reference to other earthworks and certainly not the material. The material was cedar. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But do you mean generally? Yeah. Yes, the spiral. Yeah, I love that piece. And it's just still, it's still as potent as it was before. And it never ages in in the sense of, of his thinking of doing that. It's still something that feels consequential, like, like a consequential idea. And, and Iggy's pride that Steve, at Steve Oliver's ranch is also, I, I had to cut into a hillside in order to, to, to put that in. And I built that outdoors, outside. And that really is a site-specific piece. Well, that brings up something I was curious about. A lot of Earth artists, once they had to or had the opportunity to, to take their work indoors into into cubes, into white cube spaces, you know, the work lost a lot of zing. You have pivoted from making these large installations outdoors that are very earthworky to not just working indoors and making great indoor pieces, but you have kept working outdoors, not not necessarily as land arty as you were in the late 70s and early 80s, but you have kept making pieces to be sited outdoors. What is the difference in how you approach a piece like Song of a Saint made for a site and, uh, and a large cedar sculpture or a large bronze sculpture that is simply going to be made to be outdoors? I don't, I don't think that the bronze bowl wood lace is a site-specific piece. I would say something like, like there's a piece named Paddywhack that Anne Hatch commissioned that's in Sebastopol. It's still in Sebastopol, but at some point I'm going to get it back because I think she's selling that property now. But that piece is definitely related to the curve of the land that it's on, and it's in an apple orchard. And I loved doing that, and I built that out there. We we pitched many tents to sleep in, and we were there for something like four or five months building that, me and my team. So I, I, I so enjoyed doing that. That, like many of your pieces, is made from cedar. We'll have an image, by the way, of, of Patty Whack on manpodcast.com, and I think we may come back to it later. But so that's a cedar work, and everybody always asks you about cedar. And so I'm going to also, but maybe hopefully in a slightly different way, you often talk about how hard it is to work with, how hard it is to carve or to sculpt. What do you mean hard in what way? Hard in difficult. the labor? or the... Yeah, no, difficult, difficult. And the, the, the quote I had saved from your Judith Richards oral history was, quote, it doesn't carve well, cedar carves terribly. But you keep using it. So what about... But you know what I'm saying, what I meant by that? Maybe I wasn't very clear that you can't chisel into cedar because it splinters, you know, way down. But cedar is cut so easily by a circular saw. 
and we have special blades that we get that this Japanese man makes for us and I get like a thousand blades and they're very special with very very sort of custom made tips for 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 it's a seven and a half inch blade with that blade it cuts through cedar very very easily it's almost like butter and that's why I use cedar but you can't chisel it you can't chisel into it and I think that's what I meant you can't carve because uh, I, I usually associate the chisel with carving into something. So then cedar for you, is, the response is to its material property, to how it takes a blade rather than color or permeability or uh, even that it's really maybe the only natural wood that a minimalist use, Carl Andre. Yes, but he used big blocks of cedar, right? I'm remembering that, yeah. He did use cedar, and cedar is supposed to do well outdoors, you know, but but bronze lasts 2,000 years, you know, as opposed (laughs) to what cedar lasts, so... So it's mostly you like how the cedar takes a blade. I never thought of that that way, but I, I think that that's a huge part of the reason. I guess that's another possible response to minimalism in the sense that no minimalist would have said he or she was attracted to a material because of how it receives human action. You know, all those Donald Judd fabricated pieces are all designed to resist human action. Because there are very few few woods that, that react the same way to the circular saw. And we do things with a circular saw that nobody, nobody does. We, 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 we torture. I torture it, you know. And I've cut myself to, you know, for something like thirty, thirty years, thirty-five years. No, I bet. <laughs> but, but, but now I have guys that have cut for me, you know, for for a good long time. And you have to have courage to do it, actually. And but, but more than courage, you have to have a real will and a want to do it, and you have to be really, really good at it. One of the really art historical valuable things about your Art 21 segments is that they show at length what you just described, working working with, with wood, working with bronze, the blade, the circular saws. We'll either link to those videos or we'll embed them on manpodcast.com so people can see what we're talking about. In around the mid-1980s, around 1986 or so, you started using graphite, applying it to the surface of wood. First, before we get to what the graphite does to the surface and to the viewer's experience, you've pretty consistently said that you don't remember how you came to use graphite, but I thought I'd check again to see if if you've figured out or anybody has found for you how you came to graphite. (laughs) I feel like people love wood in all the wrong ways. Or for me, that's that's just my thinking. And obviously they can love the wood in any way they want, you know. But, w- but one of the things that I hate is when they get a slice of a tree and then, you know, makes it into a, a coffee table or maybe, it, you know, so you can see all of the growth rings. And it, it, it makes me ill because I I don't even like to see any 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 sort of markings or any sort of indications of much of anything that I need 
I need the wood that I use to look neutral, to look as though it's a piece of paper. Do you know how you, how and why you started using it? I mean, in other interviews, you've said you don't remember, but... I don't think I do remember. I remember some of the... Uh, there's a piece that I made for Exit Art when Jeanette Ingberman was the one that ran it. Well, she's the only one that ever ran Exit Art with her husband, Papa Colo. But I had seven, the, the Metropolitan Museum of Art bought it, but they're like seven mountains, exactly. And those pieces were made by having, like, I made some organic-looking squares out of cedar, and they looked so stupid, so uninteresting, that that I then, on top of those squares... I built these these seven mountains, but the square was still something of note, you know, that one could feel that there was something hard, hard on the inside of their bellies, but because it actually showed on both sides. So I would just cover, cover them with four by fours that were organic that went up and then down again over, over those square cedar blocks that were huge, that were, were quite large. But just the notion of being able to feel that on the inside, that it was made kind of differently, and then some of them were painted in slight silver, so even when I put graphite over it, you know, it would still look a little bit different. So their presence in the belly of the mountains ended up being very important. And I think, I mean, I know I used graphite on that piece. I know I used graphite. I'm just not positive that that's where the graphite started. But it started very soon. If I did something before it, it was very soon after that I used it, that I really used it in, 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 in this piece, The Seven Mountains. And I think that the, Metro, that the Metropolitan Museum of Art had it on exhibit for something like seven years or something like that in the Lila Atchison Wallace Wing. Well, they should get it back out, darn it. Well, they have it. They have it somewhere else now, and it's okay because it's, it's friends with a Louise Bourgeois. It's in Texas with a Louise Bourgeois sculpture of her eyeball. It's, it's, I think it's at the University of Texas. They have a gallery there. So the way the graphite makes the wood look and the wood makes the graphite look is a very specific thing. And on your bronze pieces, the painting and the patina is also very specific. Do, do, they, do, do you think of them as having similar visual? There is no relationship. And, and visually, I think that they say very different things. They're, they're, they have a very different purpose, but obviously they both affect the sculpture visually. But when I put on the patina on the bronze, I have a torch in my left hand, which extends about a little bit over a foot, and it's got powerful, powerful flame that is so strong and it makes so much noise just to come out, just to flush itself out. And it's and it's at a blue it's blue and it has a point on it. So I I warm I, I, I heat the bronze 
that I'm going to be putting the patina on, and I heat it generally, you know, around as well. And then I heat really well where I'm going to be putting the chemicals. I have a container of about seven to ten chemicals, and each one has its own brush, and you don't mix the brushes. And I then almost fry this this patina onto the surface of the bronze. And I think in some way that this torch warms the bronze so that it can accept these chemicals that I put on it. And and because it just doesn't work with a cold bronze. But it's 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 really a process that enabled me now to use color. I have not used color for decades and decades. And I never wear color. All I wear is black. I mean, I mean, once in a while I'll, I'll, I'll wear gray, but if, if if one were to open my closet, it is 100% black, and of course the graphite just matched that kind of a, a mindset. But but the patina, I I just like discovered all of this, all these colors again, and 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 they're real, you know. I I felt like 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 there's that I could play with it in a way that that that, that you just can't play with with the graphite. It was such a glorious find for me, and it would, and and it's just I I love doing it, and it's hard work, but I love I love doing it. My guest is Ursula von Reitingsvard. We'll be right back after a break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Adrian Piper, Concepts and Intuitions, 1965-2016. to The first West Coast Museum exhibition of the artist's work in more than a decade, this is a rare opportunity to experience Adrian Piper's provocative and wide-ranging artwork, which directly addresses gender, race, xenophobia, social engagement, and self-transcendence. Also on view at the Hammer, Stones to Stains, the drawings of Victor Hugo featuring over 75 drawings and photographs from major European and American collections. This landmark exhibition reconsiders Hugo's experimental and enigmatic practice as a visual artist for a new generation of audiences in America. Exhibition details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. On view through December 30th at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, Micheline Thomas, I Can't See You Without Me, explores the artist's ongoing dialogue with authorship, identity, desire, and the historically charged relationship between artist and muse. Each of the Wex's four galleries is devoted to one of the most significant muses in Thomas's career, including the artist herself. Among the more than 50 works presented are her signature rhinestone-encrusted paintings, as well as collage, sculptures, installations, and a new multi-channel video collaboration with Grammy-winning artist Terry Lynn Carrington, created with support from a Wex Artist Residency Award. Don't miss the chance to see one of the season's most anticipated exhibitions at its only venue. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Ursula von Reitingsvard. You mentioned Paddywhack from 1997 a little while ago. I have a little grouping of lists uh, of works of yours that look like they're informed by organic life, by the evolution of Lord knows what coming up from the muck. 
Paddywhack is, you know, this series of organic, almost human-like forms. Uh, Handy Over from 96, which is also an outdoor piece, looks like kind of a chain of amoeba or a chain of some type of process happening. And, And you've talked a good bit over the years about organic forms as being important to you. When and why did that happen? When and why did making organic recalling forms become of interest? Or why are they of interest? I think I I was born that way. I think when I remember when I was two years old sitting on a some stairs and looking at my thick, thick linen it wasn't a dress, I think it was just a nightgown that I was wearing. And then seeing what the sun does to it, I think it really, I don't know, I, I, I just loved looking at it. And I used to take this linen because the linen would be extraordinarily hard on your skin if you didn't take it after it was woven and, and, and put it on grass so that it wouldn't get dirty and then water it constantly so that the sun could make it softer. So you could do this day after day after day so that that fabric, that linen, would take the form of whatever, whatever it is that was growing underneath it, which of course undulated and it's, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about undulations that are not that different from what my bronze pieces have in them or, you know, some, some of my surfaces have in them for, for even for the cedar. So, you know, so that gave me joy. And I remember in, in one of the camps that there was a, a building, a brick building that was completely bombed. And I used to go into it, you know, with, with some shards of the brick or some portions of the brick that I would, I would build things and it had a like, that there was a feeling in me that was very special. And, and it wasn't like a sexual feeling, but it was close to it. So, I think I was I was born born with that. I, I don't know. I, maybe that's just simplifying it too much. You know, continuing to progress through your through your career, starting at around ninety, late ninety six, ninety seven, maybe with a sculpture titled Large Bowl, and continuing for many years after that, even really into the present. You have made sculptures that are broader at the top than than they are at the base. So they're broader at the top and narrower at the base. But one of the things about these sculptures that are broader at the top than at the base that interest me and fascinate me is that they are the exact opposite of what we are used to seeing in the landscape where a Western butte or monolith has been eroded by time. You know, things you know, like those buttes in the Grand Canyon that are wider at the base and narrower at the top. So this is obviously a form or an idea that's interested you for about 20 years why does the broader at the top, narrower at the bottom thing appeal to you or work for you? I think I have a real feeling for bowls. But that's not to say that, you know, I, I'm, I don't fight trying to make so many bowls. I mean, it's too many bowls that I've made, but, I, but, but they keep coming, they keep wanting to be made and obviously I, I, I think of, you know, 
different different ways of doing it. But but I also think that I don't want to say this even, but that but that it has something to do with my childhood and food. You know that that, that that's what we had is we had a bowl in the middle of the of of our table, and there were six or seven children because the seventh one came along later. And we had this bowl, and we dug into it with our wooden spoons. Uh, and it was all, you know, you only had one thing that you ate for lunch. It wasn't like there were three things or two things, so you only had one thing, like dumplings, you know, and then, or, or then, then another meal was, was bread, and their breads were beautiful. I, they were like hard skinned and they were very healthy breads. And if you car wanted to carve them, you had to put them against your chest and you had to have like a real knife in order to be able to get the uh, slices of bread. And you put then pig's fat with a little bit of salt. It was great. You, you, you are obviously aware of all of the openings at the tops of many of your sculptures, some of which are include the word bowl in their title and some don't. But a huge number of your works, as we get into the 2000s, have, and I don't know what the right word for this is, but crevices or open gashes in their sides, pieces such as Wall Pocket from 2004. Was that, is that an attempt to just move the orifice to a different part of the sculpture? Or were there formal reasons, or yes, it's, it's it's an attempt to just get away from the bowl. Just like I, 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 I fight so hard to get away from the cedar. You know, it's cedar. It's it's enough. You know, you've you've done it. You know, but 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 through cedar, it it works. It 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 does what I need it to do more than any other material, and with the bowls. I try hard not to make bowls too, so that I, I I deform. I do things that there's a piece called Ocean Voices that that started off as a bowl, and I thought it's so boring that I took a chainsaw and I sliced it because I think destroying something is is kind of the best way of getting it something that might be better, might be worse, but, you know, it, it looked so awful, so boring. So I sliced it up, and I took those slices, and I made them come forward some, and some go deeper in, and so on, so that the body of it was much less regular. And then I laid it down, and I put sort of a front part on it and the back part on it, but because... It had these these structures. It became so much more interesting just to have these slices be coming out and coming in in a way that's that's very organic. And I would stuff hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of shims in them with glue on it, so that they would then seal themselves into this conglomerate that that was much much more interesting. You know, speaking of bowls, you have 
made a heck of a lot of spoons pieces. So there's ladle from 1997, socks on my spoons from 95, finger spoon two from 07, echo and sunken shadow are from 2011. Are the spoons, you know, I know we don't like going to childhood memory, but as you went there with the bowls, are the spoons a response to that? period of your life or are the spoons about something else? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, they must be related in some way, but I don't think I'm the one to say in what way. But there wasn't any sort of sequencing as to what comes first and what comes second. And people also ask me if I made small work first and then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. No, it's not like that. And I think I think I never think of an evolution in the sense of things getting better and better and better. I, I I would like for them to be more interesting. I would like for my work to to be better, but I don't know whether an artist's work evolves like that. I, I, I'm not sure that, that that really works. But what I try to do is to sort of dip into myself more deeply and i guess that would be the better way of saying it than 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 an evolution and maybe maybe trying to understand who i am i know i will never understand who i am nobody ever does but that journey is an interesting one for me in terms of thoughts for my work i mean not the thoughts that i that I say verbally, I can't, I can't do it verbal, verbally, and I don't even know what it means to dip inside myself. I don't even know what it means, but it's the closest I can come to to explaining what's what is a, really a consequence to my making my work. Well, I'm going to try on one other, even though I don't love doing the biography thing. You've made a number of shovels um, or, or pieces with the word shovel in the title that look like shovels over over your career and there are two i want to focus on one is paul's shovel 1987 and the other is schwitters's shovel which is really hard to say <laughs> from 1989 so your husband's name is paul and your father in in a kind of barn-like structure in the backyard of the house in which you grew up in eastern connecticut hung shovels from the ceiling so is Paul's shovel kind of a nod at that childhood memory of, or maybe even older uh, memory of shovels and the ceiling and place? I, I, I guess, you know, I come from peasant Polish farmers. My father was Ukrainian farmer. My mother comes from, you know, from a, a town near Zakopane that's, that's near, near Ukraine. And 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 a shovel, you know, feels to me like more like an icon, you know, more like something that made all the difference to your life that you could live, you could live because you had a shovel, because they they grew their food in the in the in the gardens that they that they had, and I'm not sure that. But the two shovels that I that I most love are the ones that are at the fabric workshop right now. They're the the largest shovels. They're the ones that are something like I don't know, 14 feet high or something like that. But they 
suck themselves out of their ground. You know, they suck themselves out of the the rectangular background into which they're sunk they're sunken into those backgrounds. And and they have one identity in back of them and then they have another identity that's that's in front, you know, that, that that looks a little more like a shovel. But none of them really look like shovels and obviously none of them are functional. So the two pieces that are at Fabric Workshop are Echo and Sunken Shadow from 2011. All these shovel pieces are very hard to say. So Schwitter's shovel from 1989, is that taking this icon-like imperative tool and and imposing the art world, Kurt Schwitter's, and a reference to functional things made art? Was that kind of an exercise to bring something from your past into your art world present? I, I never thought that, but I don't. I don't know. I, I certainly wouldn't argue that. I, I'm, but I am crazy about Schwitters. I love his work, and I love the installation things that he started. But I also love the flat work that he did, and the sort of gentle geometry that he worked with, and the gentle colors that he worked with. I have tremendous admiration for him, and at a time when there were not much, that there wasn't much in terms of supplies, in terms of materials. Schwitter's shovel definitely has what, what what you just described in it. It's also a piece like Echo or like Sunken Shadow that is either hung on or is up against a wall. Is there a difference for you between a work that is wall-mounted or, or, you know, that re- requires a wall and one that is floor-mounted and is surrounded by empty space? Sure, sure there is. You know, just like there's a difference between working on a piece for whatever site, you know, one chooses, or if even if there is no site, you know, if it's outdoors or indoors. But there is a difference, and one has to take care. But when I make a piece, I know from the start whether it's going to be a wall piece, whether it's going to have a real relationship to a wall, or if it's going to be a piece that's going to be have air all around it. I have to know that at the beginning because it's it's a really different orientation and a different sort of response to those two those two situations. We talked about lace a little earlier in the context of the outdoor piece at the Philly Museum. Um, you have, you've made a lot of pieces that both in visual form and in title refer to lace. Lace collars is a cedar work from, from 02, five lace medallions from 07, bent lace from 2014. And I think, I think the bronze piece now on view at MoMA is, is a lace piece too. What about lace is an interesting thing for you to think about or or to riff on, or to refer to in materials like bronze and cedar. Oh, I love, I love lace, but I like, I, I love only certain kinds of lace. I used to collect it when it was affordable. It's no longer affordable. It, it lace is something that I never ever wore a lace myself. I, I, I don't wear, I don't do that. It's not. It's it's not my personality to have any lace on me, but I love looking at it. And I, Rainier Maria Rilke's mother used to have drawers that she would open 
that would be full of rolled up lace that she would unroll in front of him. It just, it has so much fantasy in it, or if it's done really well. And I've, I've, I've gone to England to the V&A, Victoria and Albert, where the women that take care of lace, I went to this whole establishment that takes care of the V&A lace, and I was able to see so much lace. I love, I love the handmade lace, and I know that the women that were doing this were sort of thinking, this is how I'm going to better my life, you know, to put my mind into a place that's such a fantasy, and it's clean fantasy, and it's a fantasy that I have some control over, that the lace is, you know, a way out of the dreariness of depressing things. You know, so I see that same thing in the lace, but but it has to be done, and nobody does it anymore. You know, it has to be old lace, and I have some, you know, that I have on my wall so that I can look at it, and and it gives me constant pleasure. But but I don't believe in the in the people that wear the lace or the people that wore the lace. You know, I, I, I think of that as being very obnoxious to people that that can't afford it. I mean people that were in a state that was that was higher and more moneyed than than everybody else, you know, would this is for for long ago where the caste system was very well defined. That is a horror for me. So it, it in no way sort of, you know, loves the people that wore this lace. I actually love the people that made the lace. I guess that's a better way of saying it. I, I, I think, you know, outside critical perspective here, that a lot of your forms kind of opened up after you started doing the lace referencing work in the early aughts. And... One of the pieces that that opens up is just a gorgeous 2010 piece called Luba that I think debuted at Storm King. Um, it has an appendage, if you will, that reaches down to the down to the ground, down to down to grass. This is a piece that's that's cedar and graphite and bronze all in one piece. So first of all, do you think that the pieces that reference lace, whether they were on a wall or not? loosened you up or opened you up into making forms such as that form, that bronze form that extends from Luba? I don't think it's the lace because she has no lace. Luba has no lace. But it does have a delicate thing that hadn't been in the work, you know, five or ten years earlier. Yes, yes. I, I don't know that the lace affected my what I did with, with Luba. I think of Luba as as having an armpit that frames for me all of the trees, a quarter of a mile of a colonnade, of double colonnade of trees that are underneath, underneath her, underneath the hill that she was on for so long. Uh, so it was so in 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 that keyhole type shape was was a was a, a landscape engagement. 
Yes, yes. But nobody even needs to know that because it doesn't really explain anything. <laughs> but, 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 but she is a female. She is a she. You, you had a great line about this work from the Judith Richards Archives of American Art Oral History. Uh, but let me read it. I do feel good about having broken a way of working that made the entire structure solid instead of a bone shape and that had this growth, this kind of aberration coming out of its side that sort of is very convoluted and folds in on itself and then out of which come those two appendages that are, are more slender. It seems to me like finding a way to do appendages after what you'd made in freestanding pieces for so many years just had to be big breakthrough, be it physically or engineering-wise. I think so. I think it was. You're, you're absolutely right. And it was torture to do. You know, when, it, when, I, when I had the things in the studio, because I had to do the two two slender appendages in wood first and of course I realize there's no way that wood is gonna wood is going to last. And when I build with a four by fours I put one on top of the other, just exactly where the previous four by four I put it on top. Whereas when you go wayward, you know, you have to cut things in ways as it went away from the body of the piece. It could no longer do the grid thing, you know, so it took us almost as long to make those two appendages as it did the rest of the body. But those appendages have a very beefy top that is where the appendages Go if one follows the appendages, if the top of these appendages is just very, very wide and very muscular looking and really organic and bulbous. You you described Luba as a she. You have also described Ona, this outdoor sculpture at the Barclay Centers in Brooklyn, as a she. So are all of the sculptures she's? Are some of them she's no, and some of them no. he's? No, I, I don't know if I have too many he's, but I do have one he shovel, and that's the huge shovel that is with Echo, or I, I don't know, that might be Echo, that enormous shovel, that's a he, and but he is with a she, and they've been every, everywhere, they've been shown together. Now the he is sold, so the she is going to have to be alone. You know, another another new thing in the work are these books you've been making. Um, book with no words two from last year in this 2017 and 18 is is a whole new, wildly different thing. Why why a book? I'm not sure why a book, but I had a, I just have great urge to do it, and I I I went to a store and got a whole lot of linen. And this linen was unbleached, but it was night, night, like tightly woven. And then I cut very, very thin sheets of cedar, the four by four cedar, very, very thin sheets, and glued them to each side of the linen. And I, I had the huge pleasure of cutting the linen from the top of the book and cutting the linen from the bottom of the book because the linen went further out 
from where the cedar was cut and glued to both sides. So I had the huge pleasure of cutting that. So she has these ribbons that fall out, but it's her body. You know, she gave these ribbons birth on both sides. And it's the first time I did book binding. I just checked the computer for book binding and it's, it's like an enormous job to bind the book with this, with this heavy, uh, heavy books. Finally, on your website, which has documentation and images of lots and lots and lots of your work, it's really good. For many of the artworks you show us on, on your webpage, you include a link through the word process, whereby we can see how a given work was made. That is not something I can think of another artist that has done, and I wonder why you did it. Oh, my process is so important. I mean, the process itself, you know, tells me so much about what it is that I need to do or what is that, that, that that's possible. This is my The story of my life is that I leave my home at 7 a.m., you know, every morning, and I drive to the studio, and then I do process, process, process. I do the work that makes makes my sculpture what it is. And I love it because it puts me in a frame of mind that, I don't know, it's, it's, I think it's, it's probably one of the only times that I hum. I don't hum very often at work when I'm building, but I do hum, and I hum underneath my huge mask. But but it's something I need. It's something, you know, I, I need to know that it's coming up. And it's something that I did that has a lot of, lot of hard work, but it's, but it's a game that I, that I thought up, you know, it's, it's the way that, that obviously I, I want it, no matter, no matter how hard it is. I, I just can think of nothing that gives me more, you know, than, than what I get in my studio. And my studio is, is my sanctuary. It's 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 the place where I can I can say with the visuals, you know, what I need to say. Not that I know so clearly what I need to say, but but it's just the closest thing that enables me to let go of some things or to get some things. I I I I know I'm being not very specific, but and I can't even say I love it because there's there's agony here too. There's there's there are moments that make that worth it, and there's boredom here, and there's there are wonders that happen here. And you know what I have in front of me? Geez. So this is something that I said that's in connection with with my, what I just said, my sanctuary. Okay, and, and this is what I said to the people that came to dinner after my opening. And so I began with, I said, first I must tell you about my studio, my sanctuary, my cloister. In it, there are possibilities for freedom where my thoughts and instincts count. There are possibilities for boredom There are possibilities for adrenaline to pour out its power 
when somewhere on the bottom of the massive piece I made a really wrong move. There are possibilities for physical fear as I spend a third of my life on scaffolding. There are possibilities for inner excitement while building a sculpture that I cannot figure out from what part of my body it comes. There are possibilities for not knowing where I'm going. There are possibilities for failure so deep that I end up burning the sculpture upstate. They burn for two days. There are possibilities for anxiety so strong it pisses me off. There are possibilities for unraveling that anxiety like mincing the wood with a hatchet. There are possibilities for liberating things you thought you could never let go of. There are possibilities for rarely knowing what the right thing to do is, as there are so few absolutely right things in life. Instead, I follow the quiet nudges of my intuition. There are possibilities of a blur. There are possibilities of not understanding why I make art, not wanting to understand why I make art. There are possibilities for when the sculpture is far along. It seems to indicate to me more clearly what it wants. It feels like the sculpture is finding itself. There are possibilities of being without any talent or sometimes amazing myself with the resulting, with the resulting power of the sculpture I made. There are possibilities for yet another new invention the kind that stresses the wood more than it could have imagined. Nestor is an example of this. There are possibilities for making a sculpture with a sleepy start that makes transitions to catastrophic ends as it does in Ojikshin. Again, best of all, there are possibilities of freedom, most important, as my mind can wander wherever it wants no one tells me what to think or what to do. Ursula von Reidingsvard, thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.